So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Uh, and hello to Julian, who says, Ollie, I've been a listener since episode one and love the many varied, fascinating life stories you've covered since I first bought you a beer in December 2015. Uh, thank you for that, Julian. Both the praise and the money. I welcome both with open arms. Uh, I wanted to pass on an idea for a possible life story, continues Julian, uh, having read an article by James Bloodworth about his experiences working in an Amazon warehouse. I'd heard bits and pieces about the supposed conditions inside these warehouses, but in this excerpt from his book, he really brought the harsh reality to life. I'm sure, like many, I've taken Amazon's growth to the internet giant that it has become pretty much for granted, and I've purchased loads through them. However, James has really made me think seriously about whether I should boycott Amazon for now, and I think he'd be a great guest on your show. Uh, Well, Julian, through the magic of podcasting and the glory of us being a listener-supported independent show, uh, I'm very pleased to tell you today's middle feature is indeed an interview with James Bloodworth, as you suggested, and he does uh, offer real insight into what life is like working at the bottom rung of the ladder for the world's largest multinational, boxing up books and DVDs that we do all take for granted. Um, It's a really enlightening listen, so thank you very much. I think you'll enjoy it. Remember, if you have an idea for anyone whose experience you think deserves a wider audience, someone you think might inspire your fellow man fans, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. There is a feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. I do read all your emails personally. I can't reply to them all, but we do take your suggestions seriously. Many of them end up on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, Right, this week you will learn why you should bring a friend with you when you go to an art gallery. You'll learn how much it costs per second to advertise on the giant billboard at Piccadilly Circus, and you'll learn which parasitic insect is desperate to live in your beard. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. It was like an airport, with airport-style queues as well, waiting to go through security. So that could be half your break gone by the time you reach the canteen. Demeaning, poorly paid and tedious. Life in Amazon's warehouse. A little bit of cross-stitch and then mould a dildo. And Alex Fox gets crafty on the hunt for a silent vibrator. But first, it's time for the Zeitgeist. All the trends you need to know about for the week ahead with Ollie Peart, the man who told me he has, in the last five days, eaten 15 veggie burgers, and I'm tempted to imagine that's an over-exaggeration. Since going vegetarian, I've been trying to find the perfect veggie burger, and I'm struggling. I genuinely can't find it. So every time I go to a restaurant and I see there's a veggie burger on the menu, I order it. What would you like to kick us off with? Memory. Of the computerised or humankind? Both. Okay. So you're on holiday, like maybe at Pisa or Machu Picchu. Bogner. Bogner. Why not? And the first thing you do is you think, oh, I want to remember this. This is beautiful. I'm loving it. I'm enjoying this situation. So you whip your phone out, 
and you snap away, snap, 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 snap. You're describing photography. And what you're actually doing is you're externalising your memory, Ollie. You're outsourcing what you'd normally keep in your brain. Exactly. Okay. The trouble is that our memories are very easily corrupted. There was a study that was done by a psychologist called Elizabeth Loftus. She found that when she told people that cars collided instead of hit, they remembered that accident or that moment as far more serious than it actually was. And technology, your phone, is literally changing how we remember things because our attention is completely diverted away from the experience that's around us. So like 15 years ago, if you wanted to, if you were on your holiday or whatever, you, you'd whip out your camera and you might take the odd snap, but that's it. When you're in that moment, your, your brain is absorbing all that information. It's taking it all in. You're far more likely to remember it. You remember the sounds, the sensations and whatever else is going on. Because you spent more time looking at it than looking at a screen looking at it. Exactly. But... When you say that taking a multitude of photos and storing them on your phone is somehow less accurate than your own brain memories, the opposite's true, isn't it? You actually have an accurate document, if you haven't put a photo filter on it, of what it actually looked like. And before, when you used to just have one, okay, you might take 36 pictures, but only one of them would be good enough, your whole memory of that holiday was influenced by just one picture of your mum standing with a lion. And that's not what the whole holiday was like. There was the boring journey in the car to get there and all the rest of it. First of all, I want to see that picture. Second of all, the like the problem is is that you're talking about one sense. You're talking about the visual sense. And when you're when you're on holiday or you're wherever it might be, if I've oh, remember this one example which I will use in Greece, and I was sat having dinner. I was right by the water, and there was amazing sounds. The smells were incredible. The taste of the food was incredible. The wine was amazing. The chat was good. A photo would do very little justice of that. It would just be a very noisy, slightly crap photo because it was quite dark yeah whereas a mobile phone video gives you quite a lot of sensation doesn't it well there was another study what it did is it took people on a on a self-guided tour around a church and half of them had a, a camera and half of them didn't and then a week later they were asked a questionnaire about their tour and how much they remembered those without the camera scored seven out of ten 70 percent and those with the camera scored six out of ten 60 percent so that's a 10 percent difference if your if your memory i know it's only little but if your memory dropped by 10 percent do you know what I mean? Do I do know what you mean, but I bet they hadn't looked at the photos they took as an aid memoir. That's my point. Like, yes, you're right that if you are looking at the experience through a lens rather than in real life, as it were, then at the time you're going to have a better brain memory formed by looking at it. But I think retrospectively, looking back over your series of photos or videos, it can be an amazing way to remember what it was like in a way that wasn't possible before. Yeah, but gut instincts are created by experience. And if we, you know, outsource our experiences, that's going to be a problem isn't it it's not as if you're going to go back through your photos every time you want to make a decision is it what else have you got for us this week what do nicholas cage in con air john travolta in pulp fiction you mcgregor in star wars attack of the clones bono and david bowie ziggy stardust have in common the mullet oh right yeah it's back no it isn't i mean i wish it was because i haven't had my hair cut recently and i'd like to have an excuse the hairdresser john vile he's based in slane square uh-huh. he's got a pop-up somewhere else and he has reinvented the mullet for the 21st century. How? Well, he started by giving the mullet to women, which is a bit of a change, isn't it? It was typically a male haircut. Yeah, no, that I have seen, actually, on catwalks and stuff, women with mullets. There you go. But again, you see a lot of things on catwalks that never materialise in real life. See, I thought that as well. So I thought I'd email John. Prepared... You've emailed the man at the source of the trend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought You've done well, some research? Well, no, no, because he hasn't got back to me yet. Right, so okay. I, I've only made sort of like the first, first no, point fine. of contact. Okay, yeah. But I thought, if he's prepared to cut my hair in a mullet, I will see if, as he says, 
it is the if it really is a high maintenance haircut that is experimental and not for everyone. I love that by doing this show, you've begun to challenge yourself as yeah. well as rely on our listeners to challenge you. Well, because I, I just feel like in a way, this show's about you growing as a person as much as it is about encouraging our listeners to try new trends. I feel like I am too. Um, should we bring on the results of your actual challenge? Um, last week, Manfan Allen tasked you with trying to get your face somewhere impressive for a hundred pounds. Uh, how have you fared? Uh, well, impressive to me in advertising would be. I actually thought the moon at first, so I thought, can I get my face lasered on the moon? Right. Uh, I couldn't find anyone that could do that, and Such also a thought it might be unique individual. Yeah, but I thought that'd it's be extraordinary. I thought that'd think. be illegal as well. Yeah, probably isn't it? Like, because you sure. know, like they laser pen like pilots and stuff. Fine. Anyway, what was your second thought? Piccadilly Circus. The big screen's here. Yes. They've been here for over 100 years. Uh, Coca-Cola's been here since 1955. Yeah, I think you can guess from the level of the sponsors, Samsung, Coca-Cola, the BBC, that you probably can't afford that for £100. Well, I uh, no, no, I can't. It costs 95 pence a second to advertise on that board. So, oh. and, but, but they're not going to give me a second. No, but... And, and I couldn't actually get hold of... But you've got more than 95 pence. You've got £100 to spend. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you could, so just to be clear... Yeah. So for, my math is terrible. Mm-hmm. How much could you buy for £100 on the Piccadilly Circus billboards in, in London's West End? Just over a minute. Yeah, a minute and a half. Yeah. That's actually quite good for, because, you know, for a publicity stunt or whatever, all you'd need is a picture of you standing in front of it. Hmm. It'd but, be worth £100, but, but, wouldn't but it? But that's, you... based on, that's based on the annual cost. So the annual cost is £30 million a year. Ah, yeah, right? so that's a bit so out of our budget. if I said to them, oh, look, I want a second... Yeah. Or 100 seconds well, 100 They'd probably seconds. go, well, we'll probably... Minute and a half. We're, we're, we're going to charge you £100 here. a second. They'd, they'd do something like that, wouldn't yeah. they? I guess by the time the lawyers are involved and you've got to sign contracts for your minute and a half, that wouldn't be worth it. So then I thought traditional billboards, that'd be quite a good idea, wouldn't it? And they come in like, they come in two forms. There's a 48 sheet billboard and there's a 96 sheet. 48 sheet, between 150 and 250 pounds. So I can't get yeah, one you, of You've got to print off the sheets. Got to print off the sheets. Got to find, where are you going to find sheets? Exactly. I don't have a sheet supplier. The next stop was, well, why don't I go for print magazines? Yes. Yeah? So I thought Esquire magazine. Yeah. Esquire cover full page $156,000 yeah so you're just a thousand I mean yeah what $156,000 yeah, sure, yeah. for a cover page of a magazine are yes. you mad no I'm not what, that's not okay what, well it is if you're Yves Saint Laurent it's obviously out of your price but I'm saying it's not unexpected I'd expect that it's a fashion magazine it's, yes, I, okay. I'm not going to have an argument with you about this okay it's fine it's did acceptable. you start looking at sensible options yes are you outside the puppet theatre in Yeovil I Ollie will be gracing a digital billboard yeah in Slough. Do you want to see the billboard? I guess I want to see a picture of a billboard in Slough, yes. Yes, you definitely want context, to see the billboard. Yes, sure, okay. There it is. Yeah, 120,000 cars on a daily basis. 120,000 cars. <laughs> Opposite one of the largest Tesco superstores in the UK. Also, if you look very carefully, it's in a, a bit of a dumpy bit of Slough there, so it stands out. For £100, how much do you get for a crap billboard in Slough opposite Tesco? So I'm going to be on it for five seconds every five minutes for 24 hours that's pretty good yeah and they've done me a deal it's uh, mass media advertising have done me a deal they said look normally it's a lot more expensive it'd be twice as much as that so you've actually booked this in have you yeah it's booked yeah are you going to go and have a look at it when it's on when I find out exactly what day it's going on yes I, d- I don't want the photoshop version of this I want the actual selfie view in front of your billboard yeah, otherwise sure. it didn't happen yeah okay I now wonder because originally the task that Alan set you with was to get your face somewhere impressive that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I wouldn't say you've aced it, but you've certainly you've put it on a digital billboard, and that's pretty big. It's it's okay. Hundred um, pounds. It's pretty good. I now think that maybe we should be taking the opportunity to promote the podcast rather than just your face. Or do you still prefer the idea that it's just your face with no context at all? Well, I thought it should say "See you next Tuesday" on it. <laughs> 
And I don't know Does if that that's... contravene guidelines? I'm not sure. No, yeah. surely it doesn't. No, it's a slogan. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, because the picture That's I've got perfect. is me... And in, people in Slough would enjoy that. Yeah, of course they would. Anyone enjoys a pun, it's the Tesco shoppers of Slough. Yeah, I go past you. <laughs> he means cunt. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent, okay. Well, uh, maybe we can try and have a man day trip. I'll, I'll see if... It, let me know when it's going to be on the billboard and I'll try and come down with you. I will. Um, and we'll keep an eye on our Twitter feed as well, at The Modern Man, when we know... Uh, we'll put it on Twitter and, and maybe it would be great wouldn't it, if we could have some man fans actually taking pictures of themselves in front of the Piat Shrine yeah with me possibly you know, I'll, I'll happily sign autographs yeah <laughs> excellent uh, it's like the most low rent local radio thing ever isn't it come and meet me in a car park opposite Tesco <laughs> in Slough oh, it's going to be amazing it's, it's a homecoming <laughs> I, I, I'm from just up the road uh, here's the digital envelope let's reveal your task for next week's show Alfie from Chicago says I'd like Ollie to test out some recipe boxes and decide which is best uh, recipe boxes are you familiar with this concept yeah I am they're like uh, you get a, you get a box with a load of ingredients and instructions of what to do with them to create a meal yes exactly right? yeah so, and is it per because uh, I've never done have you done one before done a hello fresh one before okay right yeah is it just you get one meal in the post delivered to your door is it like five or six meals I don't even know how it works well I've had a trial one and it was literally just one meal okay and it it, it comes like uh, you know like on Blue Peter where everything's set up and it's, it's completely <laughs> organised it's like that but for food okay so right. everything is there it's all measured out you just tip it in stare it makes you look like a pro okay so you've done HelloFresh but there's actually quite a few on the market aren't there mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed every time I open a print magazine like 10 vouchers fall out for these recipe boxes so we are genuinely curious what you impartially independently and as a vegetarian yeah trying to cut down on your plastic believe is the best recipe box on the market alright are you prepared to accept the challenge yeah be like a better looking Jay Rayner you already are see you in Slough see you in Slough <laughs> Hello, man fans. My name's Jessica Chirasi, and I'm curator of information and research at the UK Government Art Collection. These are my tips on how to get the most out of a visit to an exhibition. Tip number one, read up a bit beforehand. I don't mean that you need to study, but it's a good idea to have a read of what's on the website of the museum or gallery you're going to, and perhaps a couple of reviews of the exhibition. This will give you a bit of context and let you know what to look out for as you go around the show. It means you won't spend all of your time reading and it'll free you up to actually look at the artwork rather than read about it. Which brings me on to tip number two. Spend time looking at the works on display in detail. Doesn't mean you have to study everything meticulously, but choose maybe one work in each room that calls out to you. Try and see if you can notice anything about that work that you wouldn't get from looking at it in a photograph. Think through what the work is doing. I like to say that it's always good to spend a bit longer looking at something than is comfortable. Ask yourself, what is going on here? Tip number three, bring a friend. All of this looking and thinking and questioning about art is much easier and more enjoyable if you can team up with someone else. You may notice a lot more than you would have otherwise by thinking about it from someone else's perspective. I find I learn a lot from talking things out. Seeing an exhibition with a friend is also a lovely way to see how there isn't just one reading of a work of art, but many readings. Well, there you have it. To find out more, pick up a copy of Who's Afraid of Contemporary Art, out now, online, and in all good bookshops. 
Now, what have you bought from Amazon in the past six months? Uh, I've just had a quick scan through my own order history, which reveals an oil-filled radiator, a cat flap, a mains adapter, some cycling gloves, a USB cable, a video rental, a smartphone case, a card game, some echinacea, and a travel guidebook. That is a far from untypically eclectic list. The range of products that Amazon delivers to your door these days is utterly bewildering. And the convenience of it can feel like a miracle of modern logistics. But all the products originate in large warehouses across the country and all are picked and packed into boxes by human beings. Journalist James Bloodworth went undercover in 2016, travelling the country, experiencing minimum wage jobs for his new book, Hired. His first port of call was Rugeley in Staffordshire, where Amazon are the town's biggest employer. He got a job there through the temporary employment agency, Transline. I applied through the website, kind of filled out a very basic form, and then a couple of days later, I received a phone call, and I was invited into to Transline's office in in Cannock Chase for a interview slash induction, where I turned up, and there were lots of other people there who'd been uh, invited in on the same day. We we all filled out a kind of pile of, of forms, took a drug and alcohol test, which was slightly odd because I'd, I'd never done that for a job before, and and then we were basically told that you know if our forms were in order. Um, you know, we had identification, etc. We were told that we would start in a week's time. What did they tell you the job was? Uh, so it's order picking. Um, they weren't. They were quite vague about uh, the job. Transline was first of all. The one point they did drum home was that it was a temporary job. One uh, Amazon worker said when we started, "Be under no illusions that this this is a temporary position." And a Transline rep had said at the induction that, you know, it's a temporary position, and, and I've got kind of. 70, 80 other people waiting for the job, so if you don't want it, go away. <laughs> and I've driven past some of these Amazon warehouses. There's some near me in Hemel Hempstead. They're vast. Yes, I mean, Amazon liked to boast that the warehouse was the size of 10 football pitches. That was a specific warehouse in Staffordshire, but I think they're all roughly similar size. The result of that was, you know, working there, you'd, you'd end up walking kind of 10, 15 miles every day because it's so 10 football pitches. I mean, that, that's absolutely huge, yeah. What does it look like inside? Sameness. It's 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 aisle after aisle after aisle of just various items from everything from books to kind of plant pots to grass seed to everything you can possibly imagine that's on the Amazon website is in this warehouse. Just row after row of aisles. There are four floors uh, to it as well. And are, are the items arranged in any kind of logical way? I mean, are all the CDs together and all the books together or not? Uh, there, there probably is some logic to it, but I can never quite work out what it was. I mean, there's a section where it's all closed, for example, but things like books are interspersed with, with all sorts of other things. It's not just like books and DVDs in one place. It's, it's everything seemed to be... I couldn't work out in just under four weeks I was there what the, what the logic of it was. So what was your job, actually? Not what it was described as by the agency, but what was your typical day like? So it would be following uh, the directions of a handheld like electronic device around this huge warehouse, picking orders off the shelves, um, various items off the shelves, putting them in a basket. Um, each one would be timed by a kind of timer which would count down on the electronic device. And you'd, be, you'd walk around, my average was around 10 miles a day around this warehouse, just constantly picking items off the shelves, putting them in a basket, then sending the basket down a huge conveyor belt. And I mean, you said there weren't set days but were there set hours on the days you were working 
Yeah, so I mean, I had shifts. So I, I worked four days a week, uh, ten and a half, half hours each each shift. Right. Um, but it was liable to change because we were on zero hour contracts with the agency. It was liable to change quite quickly. So one day, I mean, I went in one day, and then the next day they said uh, there's no work. They said there's no work tomorrow. The warehouse is closing for maintenance or something. So you immediately lose kind of um, one of your ten and a half hours out of your out of your wage packet that week. And how many days in advance were you supposed to know about the hours you'd be working? I wasn't sure because because it's zero hours contract. The agency could effectively just tell you on that morning that there was no work. There was nothing to stop them stop them doing that. And are you able to say I can't work that particular Monday because I'm off doing something or not? No, no. I mean, it's the flexibility. It, there's flexibility, but it's all all one way. I mean, it's there wasn't much flexibility for us as as order pickers, but it seemed the flexibility was in the hands of the agency. Okay, so you turn up for work. You pick up your electronic device. I'm curious, what is it? Is it an Amazon Fire tablet that they've customised? It's quite um, retrograde in a sense. It looks quite old school, but it's um, it just has just this electronic device. You pick up, plug a battery into it, and it has a timer. As soon as you scan your first, it sends you around the warehouse. As soon as you scan your first item, um, a timer starts on it, and then it it counts down and then every time you scan another item it replenishes the timer so you're timed in terms of your productivity and if your productivity falls behind the average whatever that is at the time for for that shift cohort you will receive admonishments to speed up through the app so you're in the bottom 10 percent of productivity you need to get your productivity up but it's typically an employee for either the agency or amazon who's sending those things through to the device because they're sat on a computer somewhere in the warehouse looking at who's the fastest and who's the slowest worker it was a very lonely experience in a way because you're in you're in this vast warehouse. I mean, there's several hundred people in there at, at the time, but it's it's so big. You're not allowed to to talk to to your coworkers while you're actually working. I mean, I was told off several times for for doing that. I saw other people being told off for doing that, and it, it yeah, it's, it's kind of a, quite a lonely experience for ten and a half hours. Quite a long time to be to be just walking around, you know, on your own with your following this kind of device with your own kind of thoughts in, in is, sort of is it silence. silent? Yeah, yes, there's no, no radio. No radio, no. What's that about? I mean, I understand why they might not want you to go in with your own phone, but why not play something on the sound system? I can't see any real practical reason for that. I think it's... I didn't get the impression when I was working there that they were particularly bothered about making the work environment pleasant for, for workers. It seemed to be all around productivity. It was almost a version of Taylorism. Um, so the idea that workers must be turned into perfect productive units and anything which improves productivity is good um, and anything which which doesn't improve it is superfluous, if you like. But what you're describing isn't Sports Direct. You're describing an American corporate monolith. And, okay, we know that not everyone who works for American corporate monoliths is satisfied, but we also know that the way that American corporate monoliths present themselves is about making the world better. I wondered if you saw evidence in that warehouse of that conflict between, you know, the kind of slightly dank conditions you're describing and the corporate philosophy, which was presumably all about, you know, making everyone's world more convenient and happy. No, I mean, the corporate philosophy at Amazon, as with many... Uh, contemporary companies which present this image of almost popular capitalism you know Richard Branson would be an example um, in Britain you know rolled up shirt sleeves you know pro-diversity uses all the correct like language but behind that is kind of the same old in some respects the same same attitudes towards working people within Amazon there was a, there was a lot of 
euphemistic language used. So we weren't allowed to be called workers. We were called associates. And everyone in the company is an associate. So we were told that Jeff Bezos is an associate and so are you as, a, as an order picker. We weren't allowed to call the place a warehouse in which we worked. It was a fulfillment center. <laughs> um, there were cardboard cutouts of supposedly Amazon workers dotted around the warehouse and they had speech bubbles coming from their heads. One of them, one of which said, we love working here. We miss it when we're away. And were you reassured as employees, you know, in the way that you said, you know, pro-diversity, doing the right thing corporately, were you assured that if there was an issue, there was someone you could speak to? Was there a sense that there was anything benign about the parent organisation? Well, it, it would be Transline we mostly dealt with um, as, as an employee who dealt with things like wages, um, for example. And I had, I mean, zero confidence in, in them to deal with any issues which came up. So, for example... My first two weeks working there at Amazon, I was underpaid my wages. So one week, I think it was £50, I was underpaid by Transline. Another week, it was £60. And so effectively, I was paid below the minimum wage because we were on the minimum wage. If you knock £50 off, that takes you below it. I interviewed a young woman who, who lived in Canuck Chase, who worked at the Amazon for a while. And she worked for Transline and, and the agency had paid her the equivalent of, I think it was 62 pence an hour. Um, and it took her six weeks to claw the money back. That was because her mother threatened to to report the agency to ACAS. So they'd have said that's an administrative error, but your experience was it was happening. But it was happening. Eventually. It was happening a lot, and you were given kind of short shrift by the agency if you complained about it. Um, and essentially, I, the agency refused to give me a copy of my contract to start with because they. They said that because it was a zero-hours contract, there wasn't actually a paper document, which makes no sense at all, but they assumed I wouldn't know that. Similarly, Amazon itself, when I took a day off sick, um, I went went back to work after I'd taken a day off sick and someone came looking for me from Amazon and issued me with, with a point. As it's kind of a disciplinary point because I was ill. You know, I'd phoned in beforehand to report myself ill. I said I could get a, a letter from the doctor if, if it was necessary. But this Amazon employee said, you know, this is what Amazon's always done. You receive a disciplinary point if if you're off sick for a day, whether you've got a doctor's note or not. And actually the picture that you're painting of walking around a warehouse kind of tethered to a device, not talking to anyone, and working for a company that are distanced from your actual employer by using an agency. You know, I mean, it does, it's an easy thing to say, but it, it feels a bit black mirror, this. Yeah, there was, there was an aspect of that. And I think what was particularly you know harrowing about the experience was i mean for me i i knew i could i walked into the job of, of my own volition i could leave you know when i chose but if you think that amazon was the biggest employer in in Rugeley, every job entry-level job there was was temporary amazon arrived in 2011 which was exactly 20 years after the lee hall colliery closed which employed roughly a similar number of people in the past, you'd had two power stations, which had employed a lot of people in the town. You'd had a company called Thorny MI. You'd had Armitage Shanks, which makes the sinks and toilets that most people will will, will have in their homes. It was a kind of centre of, of British industry in, it, in, it, in its kind of modest way. And the biggest employers in town today were, first of all, Amazon, and then Tesco and Argos. And again, most of the entry-level jobs were temporary positions or zero-hours contracts. So it, it creates this kind of precarious dynamic around the town where people are struggling to get a mortgage struggling to uh, support a family that isn't amazon's fault is it i mean from their point of view they've come in and built something where local people can work after a colliery which was a very dangerous place to work was closed down that's not a bad thing i don't wish to romanticize the past i mean you could you could die people did die uh, in the, in the colliery in in Rugeley, whereas you're very unlikely to die in an amazon warehouse um but at the same time i mean the the colliery had a, a strong trade union 
Um, similarly with, with the other manufacturing jobs in the area, there was kind of um, a support network which, which built up around the old industry, so social pubs, social clubs, uh, workers' educational organisations. They were well-paid jobs as well. Coal mining in Rugeley, with through, through the kind of victories won by the trade unions, it was, it was by the 80s and 90s, it was a relatively well-paid job. I think a lot, a lot of people wondered in the town what regeneration really meant. So with the new jobs, companies like Amazon had, had come to town and, and the, the sorts of terms and conditions they were offering were much worse than, than the things people were used to in the past with the old industry. So, I mean, on the one hand, those, the newer jobs were safer than some of the things that, that went before them. But you, I felt like, and the people, from the people I communicated with in the town, that something had been lost um, with the old jobs and the, the kind of new world of work was much more precarious and you didn't know whether you were coming or going from one day to the next. And who were your fellow employees? Mostly by the time I arrived in Rugeley, most of the people working as order pickers in Amazon were Romanians, um, Eastern Europeans. Local people who I interviewed said that, you know, originally when Amazon had arrived, lots of local people had, had worked there, but they, they wouldn't put up with the, with the kind of conditions on offer. So by the time I arrived, um, it was mostly Eastern Europeans who were working there. I lived in a kind of bedsit with three Romanians um, who, who also worked, worked at the company. And they would say, you know, that people like them were willing to do it because they were desperate. You'd earn £100 a week in, in Romania, whereas you'd earn 200 60 pounds I think it was a week in in Rugeley they were quite desperate what were the breaks you were permitted in your 10 hour shift uh, so you had two 15 minute breaks and one half an hour break um, but you were only paid for 10 minutes of the 15 minute breaks um, 10 minutes each break and uh, the time you had off for a break included time walking from the warehouse going through secu- the security gates and reaching the canteen which could typically take as long as 10 minutes because going through security there's a queue you have to empty your pockets like an airport it's airport style security and that's to stop people nicking the products basically there's there's kind of an air of suspicion hanging over you the whole time so we were told you know you're not allowed to wear hooded tops not allowed to wear sunglasses because they need to see your eyes at all times and what was the canteen like it wasn't so bad i mean the the one of the few good things about the place was the food was slightly subsidized so you could get kind of a greasy plate of food for about four pounds or something one funny thing i noticed in the canteen there was a big basket containing cough sweets and and medicines and stuff and it reminded me on the on my first day someone said you know we need you to come in even if you're ill you just need to self-medicate and then there was this big pile of basket of (laughs) of medicine in the canteen which kind of when i started off i was relatively fit and healthy i've been going to the gym a lot recently i've been been running quite a lot despite walking around 10 miles each day working at amazon i ended up putting on a stone in weight um, because the the types of food i was eating um, while i was doing the work not just because the canteen stocked tended to stock kind of greasy foods kind of chips and 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 mints and and things like that but because you'd end up it was such a kind of miserable existence that you'd end up craving things that gave you that momentary kind of um, feeling of, of uplift if you like so so I started smoking again while I was working there because you just feel depressed and you want something that gives you that momentary kick if you like whether it's a Mars bar whether it's a, a big plate of, of greasy food and a kebab or whether it's kind of a cigarette and, and beers after work you just fall into that lifestyle when you're doing a job that you derive no pleasure from did your fellow employees express surprise that you were British Yes, I mean, on one of my first days, a young young woman from Romania came up to me and was kind of incredulous that I was working there. So she said, "You know, why are you working here? You're you're British." And she said something strange, which was, "You don't have a picker's face." 
an order picker's face which I mean I didn't really that kind of confused me what that meant but I think it was a, a kind of class thing I looked too healthy I looked too middle class to be to be working in a place like that but it was acceptable for other people notably Romanians or Eastern Europeans it was okay for them to be treated like that but for other people it wasn't did you see people dismissed because they weren't productive enough I was warned that uh, I was in the, the my first week working at, at Amazon. I was in the bottom ten percent of. I was told I was in the bottom ten percent in terms of productivity, and I was told if I didn't get my productivity up, I'd receive a, a point, a disciplinary point. Which again, if if I received six of those, I would effectively lose my job. And how fast were you working? Do you I was think? pretty fast. I thought. Um, so again, explain fairly, that to me. I mean, how many orders are you? picking up and putting into boxes uh so in an hour it would be about 90 90 orders an hour and i Christ. you know i was i'd be running around this warehouse running you were told yeah you were you were told you can't run but the only way to to satisfy the productivity criteria would be to run again it's one of those things there were rules that you couldn't not break if you wanted to keep your job was there anyone there who enjoyed their job i didn't meet anyone who enjoyed their job truthfully no i mean even the the eastern europeans who who we were often told you know like hard work they 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 would complain and and swear about about the managers and about the job and were constantly looking for other things other jobs that were less grim what seemed to be the most popular product people were ordering books and dvds probably would be the the thing i was i found myself picking as an order picker most I don't think I ever picked the same item twice because there were so many the, the millions and millions of products in this in this warehouse that I yeah I ne- never ended up picking the same the same product twice. Never. No, I don't think I ever did. No. So even a big selling I don't know Harry Potter book or a Dell CD. No, it was it, the, the warehouses contained so many items. Was there any level of sort of entertainment in that to, to divert your own attention from the drudgery of it? To think, oh, this is a thing. I didn't realise you get padlocks in the shape of a Swiss Army knife or whatever it might be. You end up, the longer you work there, creating a, a sense of mischief almost because there is this air of almost menace hanging over you from the management that you feel like you can't do good anyway it, it's 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 almost like you have a you're under cloud under a cloud of suspicion the whole time almost as when you're like when you're at school that can happen but you haven't done anything wrong so you feel this sense this powerful sense of injustice um so that you start to behave worse it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so you see kind of i remember i saw crisp packets on the floor and whereas in another context I might have picked them up and put them in the litter bin I, I just leave them or you'll deliver a kind of satisfying boot to the spine of some DVDs as you walk past because it's just a case of well you know screw these guys they don't give a damn about us so why should we care about their business and when you were paid properly you know as in the minimum wage for the hours that you'd worked what did that leave you to spend your money on in a place like Ridgely once you paid your rent well, I, what I found was you can keep your head above water on on the minimum wage, provided there are no emergencies. So I could afford my rent was I think around ninety pounds uh, a week for a room in in kind of a bedsit with that included all, all the bills. I had enough with with that to kind of eat and and have you know a couple of beers a week and buy a, one pack of cigarettes a week or something. But it's if there's an emergency, so let's say you know you need to go to the dentist or something or I know you need to buy a new pair of shoes because they're getting a hole in because you're walking 10 miles every day then you there's a big hole in your budget then you end up going to like borrowing money off family or if you don't have family that's you can see quite easily how people get into debt with kind of payday loans and things like that because you have a sudden hole in your budget or if the company just suddenly told, tells you that the, there's no work the next day because um, you're on a zero hour contract you suddenly find that there's a, a great gaping hole in your budget that week did you change your mind about 
this kind of working environment? Because, you know, you are politically left. You went into this writing a book thinking, I'm going to expose what it's like working for the minimum wage and presumably didn't think it would be a great experience. Did you change your mind about it? Yes, I, I'm politically left. You know, a decade before I wrote the book, I'd, I'd worked in warehouses, I'd worked on building sites, I'd worked in, in kind of shops, bars. I'd done all those kind of jobs before. But I was really, I was genuinely shocked by some of the things I saw, not just in the Amazon warehouse, but in some of the other jobs I did. It felt like there had been a real deterioration compared to, say, 10 years before and further back in terms of terms and conditions that, that workers were having to put up with. Kind of the other side of the recession, the 2008 recession, if you like. Um, it felt like people were really suffering in a way that I hadn't quite understood so well before from kind of from my journalism job in London. Do you think that's part of the problem that the laws are made in London too and most of the media are based in London or if not Manchester or Birmingham cities where the kind of class of people that write the laws and write the newspapers that report on the laws don't experience what you have? I think it's partly regional. So, I mean, there is if you if you visit towns like Rugeley, if you if you visit some of the towns in in South Wales, particularly like Ebervale and Cumbria, you can it really kind of smacks you in the face some of the deprivation and some of the kind of social consequences of of the lack of work. Um, but I mean, in some ways, our society it's e- today it's easier to shelter yourself from the kind of the hardship that that makes the wheels turn if you like it's easy to kind of cut wall yourself off from it amazon would be a good example because if you're ordering from the amazon website you don't necessarily ever have to see or even think about what goes on in somewhere in a warehouse that that's kind of sorting your goods um you don't really ever you can wall yourself off from it in in some ways it's comparable to how our ancestors a century ago could could kind of wall themselves off from what went on in the pink splodges on the map where the empire was and where there were kind of a, a class of people who were giving us our, some of our prosperity giving us kind of the lifestyles that we that we kind of enjoyed and we didn't have to see how they actually uh sweated to to bring that about i mean obviously the conditions you're describing could be improved fairly straightforwardly i mean you know as you say just a a concession to think how workers might be feeling you know wouldn't necessarily cost anything at all apart from possibly one person's job to focus on that so that's something that could change but at the end of the day working in a factory or working in a distribution warehouse is always going to be a low-paid job it isn't going to be something that's aspirational what can amazon do to improve things no one is saying that you shouldn't expect to to do some do some kind of hard work like Lisa or me um but it's it's just this this the sense of unfairness to things like being disciplined for taking a day off sick whether you have a note from the doctors or not i think most people that would that would seem wrong it flies in the face of what we think of as as a kind of civilized um country using agencies which which again don't always pay the minimum wage this obsession around productivity where it's it's clearly making workers in in these these depots really miserable and and you have towns where like Rougie where there is a, a proud history of working hard I mean those people who went down down the coal mine they weren't they were no slouches you know this is a place where people haven't been afraid of hard work but as one former collier in the town said to me he wouldn't work at Amazon because the way they speak to you it's about dignity and self-respect well do you think that's something that might happen because actually that is something that can change I'm not particularly hopeful. I think rather than relying on Amazon to turn into this benevolent company, I think the battle is empowering people who work in those places to actually organise and change things for themselves. And possibly telling consumers not to shop there. I think part of the of the battle is getting people that can afford to shop ethically to do so. I mean, I wouldn't want to lecture people who are struggling to, that they need to kind of spend more money on, on things that make 
life life slightly more enjoyable. But I think the people who who can afford to shop ethically, the same with things like fair trade. Um, it's fair to to ask them to t- you know take a take a second look at, at the supply chain where they're buying things from. Okay, I mean I've got an awkward confession for you, which is I've been reading your book. I did buy it on Amazon <laughs> before. <laughs> before the interview, before I read it, but it, I unthinkingly bought it on Amazon. I thought, oh, I'm going to meet James. Oh, I should read his book, and it was one click on my smartphone away. Where are you telling people to buy your book? So, so now I tell tell people to to buy the book uh, elsewhere. So, Waterstones, I point someone in the direction of. So they've got but, a website. And yeah, they send I mean, it out just can, the same. Yeah, I mean, you can you can buy it from Waterstones. You and it's buy a few quid more. W H Smiths. No, it's I mean, it's the same price. It's the same it's, price. It should be the same price. Yeah. If it's just the convenience then really that's stopping me from doing it isn't it yeah I mean it's, I, it's also the habit I think yes. so I mean you know, I, the, I think it's a mistake to think that we have to be perfect or we we have to have been perfect in the past on these things I mean I've I've bought things from Amazon in the past I've used Uber taxis in the past but it's also about learning about these things then pushing for kind of legislative change um, so that we can tighten laws up to make sure things like minimum wage are enforced and also yeah empowering the people who work in there um, not just thinking we can solve the problem with with consumer boycotts because i don't think we can i think it t- it will take more than that does it amuse you to think that somewhere in the corner of that warehouse <laughs> are lots of copies of your book it's slightly depressing but then again i i think it's not my fault that amazon now it controls almost you know a big proportion of the distribution of books i mean i find that quite a, quite problematic as well um, I, I I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. You can't opt out of the system. You know, you can go and live completely ethically in a tent in the woods or something, but it's it, you know it's not really feasible. So I mean, yeah, we have to live with what we got and and try to change the system from within. James Bloodworth. And if you enjoyed that, I really recommend his book Hired. We just talked about Amazon in this interview, but in the book he also experiences working in the gig economy for Uber and as a carer for elderly people in Blackpool. Uh, It is a great read. I genuinely recommend it. And uh, on our website, I've linked to the Waterstones page where you can buy the book, although it is in actual fact 75p more expensive than via Amazon. Uh, still to come, our record of the week, and Alex Fox is up next after this. Come on down, the fox is often right. It's time for the foxhole. Alex Fox is here. Hello, Alex. Hey there, Ollie. I hope you're feeling so joyous today that it's as though you ate a big bowl of amusely for breakfast. What have you been up to this week? I've been chatting to a woman named Gina Martin who is campaigning for a change in the law. A few summers ago, Gina was at a festival with her sister, enjoying the music, hanging out in the crowd, having a good time. The sun was blazing and she was wearing a skirt. She happened to spy a group of men just ahead of her uh, who were looking at something on a mobile phone and she caught sight over one of their shoulders of a picture that had been taken by holding the mobile handset under her skirt and taking a snap of her knickers. So she grabbed their phone and took it to a a security guy and kind of made a fuss and said, this is unacceptable. I'm just here trying to live my life and enjoy this lovely day with my sister. And these guys are harassing people by taking pictures up their skirts. The matter was escalated to the police, and I'm really glad that the festival staff, from what I can tell, took it really seriously. But she was told that nothing really could be done because it is not against the law currently to take a picture of someone's underwear, upskirting, as it's called, 
is not a crime. And so Gina is now campaigning to wow. make that against the law. She started a Twitter campaign, which is hashtag stop skirting the issue to give women or indeed anybody who feels that inappropriately sexual pictures have been taken of them and maybe circulated some support, something that they can back I imagine how on. that's not against the law. I mean, just not that this is a male-female issue, but obviously I you know, don't have a vagina, so imagining this from a male perspective. If, someone, if I was wearing a pair of shorts... Someone stuck a camera on the floor and took a picture of my dangly balls and then posted it online. I would imagine that was a cry. I would. I, it just seems absolutely obvious that that's a violation. It feels criminal. I asked Gina about this because it occurred to me that a lot of the paparazzi shots you see mm. of uh, celebrities in short dresses getting out of cabs or getting out of limousines at, at big star-studded red carpet events, a lot of photographers make it their mission to try, yeah, to try and get that upskirt uh, shot of someone's thong. As with all law, it would need to be interpreted in uh, a sensible fashion. Uh, so if you were examining something like paparazzi shots and there was an a-, a genuinely accidental picture of someone's underwear, whoever was assessing this legally would take into account, well, how many pictures were there? in that in that camera roll uh, what's the angle does it look like this person was intentionally trying to take a shot that exposed something that this person really wanted to keep private and to themselves so that there will be room for interpretation if the law gets changed but if that law exists it means that people who feel that they have been violated who are traumatized potentially by that who might have been massively publicly embarrassed by it they have some official support there time for our listener question as ever sponsored by our friends at mycondom.com remind us alex of their excellent service well they sell all sorts of hard to get your hands on condoms and lubes and sex toys a massive range at really really great prices but they also have a fascinating blog Mm -hmm. recently they were chatting about the research uh, of a gent called dr daniel fenton he works as medical director at the london doctors clinic and he's warning people that uh, beards which are very popular at the moment, shout out Ollie P, uh, can actually be a hotbed for STIs like the herpes type 1 virus, uh, HSV1, and they can play host to pubic lice. But presumably only if you're going down on someone, right? That's how they... That's the thing. Yeah. He's trying to alert people that if you are a carrier of an STI, then your beard may be a way of passing it on. What a resource. Uh, this week's question is from Adam in Western Australia, who says, Alex, my partner the other day in passing said she wished there was such a thing as a silent vibrator for some stealth foolery. Is there? Well, I really really wish there was because there are so many companies that make vibrators that they claim are almost silent or whisper quiet and they're freaking loud let's put it this way you wouldn't you would get chucked out of a library if you tried to use them in amid the uh, the reference books mm. Is that because of the technical challenges involved in in making a buzzy thing not vibrate? The problem is if you've got anything that's got a power source, be that uh, plugging it into the mains or using USB rechargeable power or putting batteries in it, uh, it's it's going to have motors inside it either to make it vibrate or to create pulses of air or make it move in some way. Mm. That motion is going to cause some form of sound. Uh, And particularly if you're someone who requires fairly powerful stimulation, it tends to be the case that the greater the power, the greater the volume. In short, it's actually quite difficult to make an effective vibrator 
and still make it really, really silent. My personal favourite toys are pretty loud. Mm. Um, I, I have a few workarounds for that. For a start, I wait until my flatmate is out of the house before indulging in, in my most booming battery-operated boyfriends. But if you use something under a thick duvet, then that can help mm. mask some of the sounds. I also use an app called Noisly, uh, N-O-I-S-L-I, which is a white noise generator. <laughs> um, it's really good. It's got all sorts of different types of white noise, so you can have uh, the sound of thunderstorms, which I find quite sexy anyway, or you can have tweeting birds, or you can have tweeting birds in your bedroom so that your flatmate doesn't know that you're treating yourself isn't just <laughs> every time think... the birds go off he yeah. knows that I'm fertling with my birdie parts exactly so, well I actually also use the app for concentration I find that I have a mix of kind of uh, the sounds of people in a coffee shop and a chugging train really helps me to concentrate okay so those are some workarounds but back to my question if you do just want the quietest vibrator you can get do you have a recommendation I have a few because different things work for different people so i ask my sex toy reviewer friends uh, kara sutra of karasutra.com said that the loving joy power bullet vibrator is surprisingly quiet and still gives her a guaranteed orgasm mm-hmm. but she does say if you need something with a bit more power like a wand vibrator the o wand is surprisingly quiet and violet fen again another brilliant sex toy reviewer she backs up kara and she says the mini magic wand from love honey absolutely passed her can i wank without the kids in the next bedroom hearing me test which is a rarity in itself and the guy uh behind sloop which is a product we've mentioned before you know that you make the vats of erotic slime yeah like slimer from ghostbusters yes exactly dan said that there is a toy that was specifically made to be super quiet called shy play he doesn't know whether they make it anymore though which is odd because i would have thought that the the demand for a genuinely good quiet vibrator was it must be really really high and so whilst the hunt for the perfectly silent vibrator continues uh, what else can people do in the meantime they can buy a perfectly silent sex toy which doesn't vibrate commonly known as a dildo yeah uh, people often you're holding something that doesn't look like a dildo it looks like a thermos <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say it did, well I, i'm gonna what try is that and, this is a new form of dildo and it has special moves it's got very uh, unique qualities to it and I thought I would get you to guess what those are okay. Ollie. this is new from a German company I think they're German called Dodil I see what they've done uh, yeah they're mixing up the, the dildo it's, an it's a of new dildo. take on a, on a, on a dildo so and it literally looks like a thermos you're at the right moment. it's 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 contained within this sort of stubby wide-necked thermos yeah right? and you're it's, opening it and yes there is something that appears to be a sort of cockhead shaped inside? thing inside yeah it's sort of like a, a large pill-shaped, teal-coloured rod. Well, there's a third part. Ooh! There is this orange sort of um, looks like fishing rod wire. I think it looks like what you put in a strimmer. Can you guess, Ollie, how these three items combine in order to make this plaything particularly innovative? Okay, so then we've got the rubberized tube, we've got the orange plastic twine, and the thermos. You're actually not too far off the truth by referring to it as a thermos. What would you do with a thermos? Uh, Fill it with a nice hot cider and take it out fishing. What happens is you fill it with hot liquid. <laughs> yeah. You put the dough dildo dildo inside. inside. Yeah, yeah. You put the rod inside. Right. And then pop I imagine the lid it's floating, on. right? You pop the lid on. Yeah. It heats up. 
Ah. And when it becomes hot, it gets malleable. Right. So you can squidge it into different shapes. You wrap the twine oh, around so you it if your you own want to make shapes. like ribs or yeah. corkscrews. Yeah, yeah. And then if you come up with a shape that you like, then you leave it to cool and it sets hard. And you can repeat and reheat and, and change it up as many times as you want. That's quite nice because every time you use it, you're effectively cleaning it by putting it in hot water as well. Yeah, you're you? disinfecting it. Yeah. yeah. And I, what I also like about it, it's really playful. It's a thing that you could do together mm. with your partner, uh, which would start interesting conversations. It's, you know, it's a bit silly. It's mm. it's relaxing. I'm always saying in the foxhole how there's so much pressure for sex to be super serious and performative and sultry and mm. sensual. And sometimes, especially if people have had a long day or they're stressed or, you know, it's it's difficult to go into that mind frame and it can end up making sexual experiences feel like a, like an additional thing to worry about whereas doing something that is a little bit silly and kind of almost like crafty you know it's like a little bit of cross stitch maybe a bit of basket weaving uh, and then mold a dildo Alex as ever thank you for that if you have a question that she can help with in next week's edition what do you need to do with it head on over to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback you don't have to give your name if you don't want to and remember if you want to keep yourself amused uh, in the bedroom then you can find all the accessories that you could ever possibly want at mycondom.com and if you use the code foxhole f-o-x-h-o-l-e you get 15% off everything And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man-ambassador. It's David in Adelaide, who says, Ollie, my wife and I listen to your show every weekend on our way to the nudist beach. All your interesting features make for perfect in-car listening, well worth the beer money I've just signed up for. I'm not sure if you have a nudist man-ambassador yet, but I'd be proud to fill that role for you. Uh, David, frankly, I'm not sure if we do either. No one's ever mentioned that predilection before. Um, but now, if we ever have a Manbassador meetup, I'm sure you would make a memorable addition to the lineup. I now pronounce you Manbassador for Adelaide. Congratulations. Music now, and our theme is by Django Django, who are on tour now. Go see them. And what in the heck is this? Why, it's our new record of the week by Carpenter Brute. It's called Beware the Beast. And it's available to stream now. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you in Slough. We kiss shadows with the shape of our snow. Delicious bones to rest the unknown. A dull ache from the hunger of flesh. Wild veins beneath the surface. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.